It's another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. Welcome to the podcast. He's Lauren. And he's Scott. Let's get into it. Uh, today, uh, we're having a special bonus episode uh, in which we discuss documentaries and documentary filmmaking. And uh, joining us today to discuss documentaries and documentary filmmaking is Leslie Foster. Yeah, um... Leslie is a filmmaker who is currently living in L.A. He's the executive director for Traveling Muse, a not-for-profit film collective. And he's currently finishing a documentary called Until We Have Faces, which is a film about violent homophobia in Jamaica. Um, And, uh, you know, you'll get to know him here a little bit. But just so you know, you can find out uh, all kinds of things about what he is doing um, and uh, what Traveling Muse is doing and about the film at travelingmuse.com and of course uh, we will have links to all of that uh, on our website at moviesyoushouldlove.com yes so uh so welcome leslie thank you it's nice to be here it's good to be talking to you guys (laughs) yeah um so uh yeah maybe just uh tell us uh really briefly here um kind of uh how you got into uh this whole documentary thing documentaries are an interesting world for me because i i would still consider myself primarily um a narrative fictional filmmaker Uh, that's definitely the world i live in a little more but i really do love um filmmaking uh documentaries and um i think the first exposure i had to actually creating documentaries was in film school um and i really fell in love with with that style of storytelling and so at traveling muse now whenever we get a story we kind of start asking you know does this story work better as a parable does it work better as uh as something fictional or is it um definitely served better by being a documentary and when we ran into this idea we knew it should be a documentary yeah um the uh the documentary genre is a is a pretty big world um Mm -hmm. And I, I know you've kind of said that, uh, at least like for the film that you're currently working on, um, that you're kind of doing it as a, as a piece of social activism. How do you see documentaries uh, kind of working? What are, the, what are the different forms of documentary and, and, you know, why are they so important? You know, I, there's so many different kind of forms and we're seeing so many of these now. You have, you know, kind of the polemics. Uh, the Michael Moore style films, you know, the very opinionated, angry films. Um, right. And that would include, um, I think, The Cove as well. I, I have very mixed feelings about The Cove. Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. That, mm-hmm. You know, that's definitely a polemic. And it definitely serves a purpose um, coming from one side and, and very strongly showing a point of view. You have some of your more informational, balanced documentaries. You, you have ones that are specifically created to inspire action. Um, and I think ours definitely falls in that world. Uh, I think the importance of the world of documentary is that we're so used to, in a lot of ways, fictional filmmaking. We, we see, I think, and as important as those films are, I think sometimes we can not take the issue as seriously. Oh, that's a story that someone created. Whereas in a documentary, right. you are hearing someone. You, you are walking to their house. You are literally living in their shoes for 90 minutes. And you get to, to hear from their lips the things that they're experiencing. You get to see with their eyes, the things they're experiencing. And there's something really powerful about that. Something that I think really tugs at someone's empathy. I, I absolutely agree. Um, I know 
growing up, one of the uh, favorite movies that my mom and I would watch together, the movies that we would always kind of end up renting or sitting down, were those movies that weren't necessarily documentaries, but inspired by a true story or that were true stories. Because when you know that this is something that actually happened, that these people made these choices or they lived this way, um, it speaks on another level, like you kind of said, um, in a way that just something that's completely fictional uh, doesn't. And documentaries, I think, can go... Um, kind of above and beyond. Uh, one thing that I've kind of, and I, I'd like to hear you guys' opinion on this, um, documentaries are an interesting breed of film for me because as much as I like a good story, um, or a good film, I should say, um, sometimes documentaries I find, I struggle with sometimes. Like when someone says, oh, you should check this documentary out, um, I'll kind of go, yeah, I'll do that. And I put it on my to-do list, but it doesn't, always go to the top of my list of movies to watch it's not my go-to genre um what i mean what do you guys kind of think about that or what is there are there good documentaries versus bad documentaries are there um documentaries you would recommend maybe even uh, that's uh, <laughs> I'm sorry yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing that because it, documentaries i you know i know and I think that's changing again, thanks to Michael Moore for better or for worse. I think he he has and Morgan Spurlock. I think these guys have a lot to do with how documentaries are being seen now. But I remember being a kid and, and mentioning that there's a documentary I liked and people going ah because you kind of have this idea that it's it's very dry and educational. There's certainly those documentaries, and I, I think there's a place for those in the educational world. But I think I think the line uh, of what is. Um, what is art? What is what is considered uh, a good documentary? I, I think I think the bar is getting higher mm. um, as far as storytelling because it's becoming more mainstream and people are demanding more of the storytelling uh, and more of the visuals. Uh, you know, something I think about is Restrepo, um, which was oh, one of the Oscar yeah. nominees last year. Mm-hmm. That is an amazing example of, <laughs> I mean, to some degree, cinema verite and being able to just experience what was happening and what was so smart about that film was the documentary filmmakers just let the film play like they didn't step right. into it too much they just let it happen and you got to live with these soldiers in this intense environment and i mean here's the thing about documentaries and i think when i say intense that's uh, you know that's purposeful because tension is something that i think has been lacking from the documentary genre not all documentaries but a lot of them and i think as filmmaking um, develops in that, you see a lot more of this play of tension, and Restrepo does a great job of that. Um, I think another film that uh, comes out uh, comes to mind for me is The Education of Shelby Knox, which I was a great one. film because, it, first of all, it shows the, the filmmaker's intuition. So these filmmakers go down to Lubbock, Texas, which is, um, according to the documentary, the, uh, the most evangelical city in the U.S., and also has the highest teenage birth rate. And they basically, their intention is just to follow a high school class through. And very early on, they see that Shelby Knox is going through this change, one of these, one of these high school students. They know it before she knows it. They have these, this great intuition. And they end up following her as she leaves kind of her conservative background and becomes a very vocal um, sex education advocate, a feminist, a, a gay rights advocate. Um, and they literally follow that transition over four years, and it's brilliant filmmaking. Interesting. Um, one thing that I, I also struggle with as I as we continue this kind of conversation um, is a lot of uh, reality TV has made me cynical towards the documentary 
because you start hearing these stories like when when, when uh, reality TV first came out, you had um, it all seemed very real. I'm like, wow, I can't believe they actually captured that. But now as things have gone on, we are starting to hear stories about how much of this is scripted and how much of this is just clever editing. Um, what can what can a what can a documentary filmmaker do to kind of overcome that to make sure that you know to let people know that their story is legitimate you know because <laughs> i don't know it's like it's one of those things that even watching with strepro i i that was one of the most intense documentaries i've ever seen or intense films um and for those of you who don't know it's uh these documentaries documentarians went over was it in afghanistan it was Afghanistan, yeah. Yeah, it was like this uh, one particular uh, outpost in Afghanistan, in the mountains of Afghanistan, and just followed this troop basically for uh, several months. And they're in the midst of firefights. They just follow these guys and see basically what the what the war does to them. And it's it's very apolitical. It doesn't really take sides other than um, showing the soldiers' stories. And it is just astounding. Um, but even even as a viewer, though, afterwards, I kind of went, I wonder how much of that story was told through clever editing, you know? Right, right. And and it, and the thing is, is there is some definite smart editing. I remember the first time I saw it, I went, they made some really good choices in the editing there. Yes, I mean, especially, <laughs> especially the, there's that one where they get, uh, they get ambushed on the side of the hill, and there was some very, I was very thankful for some of the editing that had to have gone on in that sequence, because... Uh, men die around the camera men um, and they they're very merc- they're very merciful in the way they depict uh, some of that absolutely yeah I, as far as your question about how to overcome that honestly I think we're still figuring that out okay. I don't know if I have a good answer to that well uh, I, sorry I, partly I think one difference maybe is the genre difference mm-hmm Firstly, even though reality TV is truly the bastard child of documentary filmmaking um mm-hmm. I feel like people definitely differentiate that in their heads. Okay. At least at this point. I, I, maybe subconsciously, it, it definitely is becoming more of an issue. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think we don't have a good answer to that yet. <laughs> um, how do you feel, Leslie? I mean, because then you also have people who kind of revel in the fact that um, they can kind of mix reality with fantasy a little bit. I mean, kind of some, you know, Morgan Sporlock or, or yeah, Morgan Michael Sporlock and, and Michael Moore uh, kind of bring some of that heightened reality to, to their things and kind of use that to maybe drive some of the points home. Uh, how, like, how do you feel about that mixed <laughs> in with everything? Uh, you know, I have mixed feelings. I, you know, I really, at, at on a certain level, really respect both of them as filmmakers. Um, um, I think I think they have to be careful um, to be able to play in heightened reality without going so far as to lose credibility. I think Michael Moore, unfortunately, has pushed some of the edges of that. Yeah, um, and I say that as someone who a lot of times agrees with what he's saying and just disagrees with how he's doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I feel like um, honestly. It, you can make your point in, in in a much better way a lot of the times. If if you truly feel someone is wrong and you let them speak, then a lot of times they're going to talk themselves into that own hole, you know their own hole. Errol Morris does this to great effect. He just yeah. lets them talk, you know, <laughs> and they will talk their way into condemning themselves if that you know. 
and and you know sometimes I would like to see Michael Moore do a little more of that instead of just pushing 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 and then doing a clever edit to make the person look even worse than they may have looked already right uh, and so I, I struggle with that uh, you know some people feel like he his film shouldn't even be considered documentaries and I, I don't know I think I think that the genre is flexible enough to, to accept what he does as documentary but I think they need to be careful that's that's actually a really interesting subject that I wanted to touch on, and I'm glad we're going into it so naturally, um, because I've gotten into arguments with uh, different people about that very thing. What is a documentary? Can a documentary have an agenda, or does a documentary need to be a very natural thing where you're just, you happen onto a story kind of a situation? Um, what, is the, you know, what is the difference between a documentary and propaganda? It's <laughs> a good question, and and is the question is propaganda a subset of the documentary genre? Mm-hmm. Probably not, but it's 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 certainly a provocative question. Um, you know, it, it's interesting uh, with the agenda question. And to be honest, I think it's hard to be truly objective. Like I think sometimes we've gotten in trouble when we try to be too objective. I think sometimes the best thing to do is be upfront about the fact that you have an opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than try to hide it behind objectivity. Because there's so much that is purported to be objective, and then the opinion gets obscured, and, and people take it for balanced fact when it truly is not. And everybody's going to come from a place uh, you know, where you have an opinion. And I think the ethics, the, the tough ethics questions of a documentary is, how do I deal with that? Right. Um, sometimes I think there's absolutely the place for the polemic. Sometimes I think that's absolutely necessary. But I think you need to do that from a place of wisdom like you really need to ask yourself is this what this film needs or is is being as balanced as possible because i don't think you can ever be truly objective but but you can try to achieve some balance um and and is is that the way to go for a film um i don't know um as far as propaganda goes you know where to draw that line uh artist objective and boy is that a subjective question there's you know I, I think you get a different answer from every person you talk to i'd certainly yeah. certainly be willing to call a michael moore film propaganda yeah i mean and, yeah, it, and it's always I'm not, sorry i'm not trying to always uh, use that in a negative way yeah i'm not trying to trying to sandbag you there with that it's just one of those uh it's one of those uh conversations and subjects that seems to come up a lot especially every time michael moore releases a film i know right. when Bullet for columbine came out i i loved it and it's like one of those i still kind of go back to it and mainly because i agree with most of what he does in that um but then when other things started coming out that he did i kind of went oh, okay hold on hold on this isn't fair anymore um you know and i think personally for me i think it's okay to go into a movie project you're going into a documentary saying i want to expose this i want to show this this is my perspective and i want to show what i show everybody what i'm seeing so you can start a conversation i just think it's i do think you have to be careful and make sure maybe you say that up front and not show this as just the ultimate truth like this is what the world is doing right now and it might not be exactly that i think there is a danger in that absolutely yeah, and well, and I was going to say, I think there's there's another side. I mean, Scott, you were talking about the uh, you know reality television and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, you know. But the other side is is that you then you also have like news reporting, um, and I I don't think most people would consider news reporting documentary filmmaking, and so there has to be like a line, I I you know I would think that 
defines what is different between a news report and what a documentary is supposed to do. Mm. And that, um, I, I mean, at least for me, that's kind of where that artistic license comes in. And, um, you know, it's told through a filmmaker's eye somehow, I would say. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Just <laughs> no, throwing no, that into no, the mix. You're, you're absolutely right. I think, I kind of think like the documentary, I've always kind of viewed it as kind of like the marriage of uh, artistic storytelling and just straight newsreel footage. Yeah, I, that that definitely is a is a is a, maybe even to go a bit further investigative news reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's a good way to put it. That kind of combination of of um, worlds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, I mean, we've kind of talked a, a bit about some different. Um, some different documentaries and stuff already, but are there any, um, you know, what are some of your favorites that you have really enjoyed? So I mentioned um, Restrepo and Education of Shelby Knox, which are definitely some of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just a few others, and it's one of those lists that always changes and always grows, but um, I really like Wasteland, another of the Oscar nominees from last year. I don't Uh, know that one. I thought Wasteland was brilliant. Um, It's basically about the artist Jardim Gramacho, who's a a Brazilian artist, lives in New York, um, and decides, and he he, he does a lot of physical work with a lot of found objects, um, creates artwork from trash and things like that. Um, And he basically goes to the largest, one of the largest trash dumps in the world, maybe the largest, collects garbage, and then takes these pictures of the people who work in this garbage dump. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then using the trash on these massive factory floors creates the portraits out of the trash. Hmm. Um, and they work with him on this. So they literally get to leave this pretty grim life of working this trash dump, picking through kind of the refuse of Brazilian life, and get to live in this space with this artist creating portraits of themselves. And it's, it's really a pretty moving and beautiful documentary and very... Um, it's a very light at the end of the tunnel kind of you know documentary definitely fills you with hope but what i like about it is that it it is self-conscious enough without being precious there's definitely some interesting conversations where you have the artist and his wife on camera arguing about whether they should take the people who work in this dump to the art shows they're going to have in europe Mm -hmm. does that condemn them to going back to a life that will never be the same but having to still live that poor life, or does it open options and doors for them? Um, and I really appreciated the fact that they had that argument on camera. Um, Interesting. Errol Morris is fast, cheap, and out of control. Brilliant. Yeah, uh, it's, it's so one of my favorites. That movie, but um, I need I mean, to go back and watch that. <laughs> if you talk about documentary as metaphor, as as really surrealist metaphor, that's a perfect. <laughs> um, and what's interesting is I heard Errol Morris speak two years ago at at, uh, at the Getty Center here in LA and he he is obsessed um, with self-delusion and it's really kind of um, allowed me to look at his films in a different way like now every time I see a film I try to ask myself what is he saying about human delusion in this <laughs> <laughs> the ability of humans to lie to themselves for us to lie to ourselves constantly um, and uh, just one more to throw out there is this divided state um and it, it started out as just uh, two student filmmakers in Utah who I believe were going to school at Brigham Young dropped out of school, went to one of the state universities because there is this amazing controversy going on and they decided to film this controversy because the school had invited Michael Moore to speak 
um, and this was during the 2004 election, I believe. And the state literally rips in half over the controversy of what's, you know, how dare you invite this man to our state? And these, and they, they try to completely like, they, they try to fire the entire student association who, who organized it. it. It gets very intense. And it's, it's again, a wonderful testament to the filmmaker's instinct and timing. Hmm. Um, so you've, I mean, you've talked about instinct and timing now a couple of times. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe we should get into a little bit of kind of the process of making a documentary and like what what that really is like. I mean, I know you're kind of coming, well, not quite coming off. You're still in post production on yours, but um, you know, kind of what does it take to to get into it? How do you find the story and you know the funding and and then what do you actually need to do to to get it made? What you know, just kind of that whole process, right? Finding the story is serendipitous. I feel like that's always what happens <laughs> to documentary filmmakers. I mean, I'll give you a quick example. I was at a meeting a few weeks ago with a friend of mine, Paul Kim, who's a fantastic filmmaker, went to American University. And we ended up staying after the meeting talking about art for at least two hours. And uh, someone approached us and said, well, I, I couldn't have helped but overhear that you were talking about art. And he joined our conversation. Turns out that he's a chaplain in South L.A., for a Samoan church and also works with the um, the LA Sheriff's Department and is this chaplain who goes around with a bulletproof vest going to crime scenes. And boom, mm-hmm. suddenly you have a very interesting potential story right there. And both of us, having done documentary film like, films, you know, looked at each other and went, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we should talk to this guy more. I mean, a chaplain in a bulletproof vest who's Samoan, you know, like this big Samoan guy. Like, you know, that's fascinating already. So, like, a lot of it is serendipitous. For example, with the, our documentary, um, it's big you know, I found out about what was happening in Jamaica because I'm an obsessive newsreader. Um, mm-hmm. And I just read kind of everything I can get my hands on. Um, and that's how I kind of started discovering the story. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of interesting ways. Sometimes it's a friend. Um, my my intern on the project um, is doing a great little film um, called Switch. And it's about um, a girl with multiple personalities. And she's someone he grew up with. So he got to see this. And, you know, the story was already there. He just needed the tools and the, you know, the permission to do it. Mm-hmm. So it just, it, it's, there's such a wide range of how you stumble into your story. Um, I think from that point on, it's just research. Even if you've lived with a story all your life, you've got to research it, you know. He may have lived with this girl with multiple personality, to use that, you know, example. But he's got to research it. He's got to talk to you know a psychologist about this. He he's got to you know put together a, a really strong background to his film. So I think research is such a such an important part for our documentary is absolutely necessary because we didn't know anybody in Jamaica um, initially, and so we had to you know figure out who the major players were, who who the gay rights activists were, and since a lot of them were underground, how to contact them in a safe way, in a way that didn't threaten them. Um, so that, our, so that our listeners know, could you give us a little bit of background on what your documentary is? Sure, um, sure. So, as you mentioned at the front of the show, it's it's about violent homophobia in Jamaica. And what I suppose to tell the story of what piqued my interest in this is back in 2004, I read a, an article in the Guardian newspaper about um, Brian Williamson, who was an activist there. And Brian Williamson ran a, a little safe haven, a gay club where people could come in and be safe and be open. He was murdered in his house. The, the killer dragged his body outside of his house, and when neighbors found the body, they danced and sang around the body. And I read that, and I thought, this is not the Jamaica that 
I've ever pictured. You know, this is not kind of the island paradise, and I wouldn't have assumed that this is a place that is a hotbed for homophobia, not just homophobia, but violent homophobia. And so I started researching and come to find out that it definitely is probably one of the the most dangerous places to be gay in the world. Um, And the story just kind of uh, roiled around in the back of my head for years until uh, 2010 when pieces started coming together and the team realized this is, this is a project we want to pursue. And that's when we dove into research. Um, so yeah yeah so okay you have that you have your topic you're you're doing research how do you i mean how do you go you went down to jamaica how long were you down in jamaica i was there for five weeks uh, how do you do that like i can't afford to like quit my job for five weeks and then right. go live abroad for five <laughs> weeks <laughs> well for one i have uh i have a great boss who allows me a decent amount of flexibility nice um, that was helpful <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, because, and let me put this in here for any person who's a young art student, you will have to get a day job. <laughs> let me tell you that right now. I, I know, I know this is, a, but don't worry about it. It will happen. And don't feel like you're, you're missing out on your artistic goals because you've got that day job. Make sure that it's something that you can do alongside your art, but you will have to get a day job and it's okay. Um, <laughs> but as far as fundraising goes, um, that's really how we were able to afford the trip. We, we, um, we stirred up a lot of noise online. We used social media. Um, we used Indiegogo, which is basically an online um, system that allows people to donate in varying amounts. We can set up the types of amounts and prizes you get for those amounts. Um, and we did a fundraising drive online. And we raised um, about $15,000 for that initial trip. That paid for extra gear it was uh, allowed us to have insurance emergency funds plane flight over there provided for our food while we were there all the kind of little things you need to build into a film budget um and so that initial amount of money helped us get through production nice so um so once you get there what you know how does it work once you are yeah, I mean, in your case, you're going out of the country. Um, you know, you've maybe set up a few contacts, but what does filming a documentary look like? And you know, what kind of stuff are you looking for? And how do you get the story um, for this right. thing? Well, as many documentary filmmakers have experienced, everything falls apart <laughs> at first. <laughs> so, getting to Jamaica was interesting because while filming is not necessarily a problem in Jamaica, something of this subject and people knowing about this publicly could definitely be a problem. So we smuggled everything in. Um, we went in very quietly. We had a cover project. So for one day, we actually shot a completely different project. Um, nice. Which we have to get around to editing at some point because <laughs> it's a great <laughs> little project. But we spent a day shooting that project and for the rest of the month, that was our cover project. But um, at that first week, I, was, I, I went a week early, uh, earlier than my intern arrived. Um, to start shooting and I spent that week in meetings, nonstop meetings, meeting with everybody, meeting with the contacts that I'd had and realized that I had to start from scratch all over again. Um, it's one thing to have people over email say that you've gained their trust, but actually meeting them and having to gain that trust is a difficult thing. Um, yeah. especially in this situation. So it was a lot of meetings, a lot of, a lot of pulling teeth and, and even, by the week we were supposed to start filming things just weren't rolling and it was it was it was both scary and pretty frustrating and finally um 
you know, one interview started rolling in another, and people who were being interviewed would go back and start saying, we think these guys are doing good thing. You can trust them. And that started opening doors for us. Um, but it really was that I, I'm glad we had that extra week because I don't think we could have gotten what we got done in that time. But as far as the story that we went there to get or what we in the manner we were going to get it, that didn't happen at all. We had intended to go and follow three specific stories and follow people around. And it became very clear that that was just going to be too dangerous. That would expose people. Mm. And so we had to completely recraft our documentary. And so it just meant a lot of time with me on the phone with my editor back in the States, you know, trying to figure out with my producer, you know, um, just trying to figure out how we were going to recraft the story and, and make it something that could really pull you in. Mm. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's really cool. Because <laughs> I mean, it's just one of, it's one of those things that I can imagine just the subject better alone could be a difficult documentary to make over here where it's, you know, it's not maybe the greatest, it's not the greatest time necessarily, uh, to be gay, but at the same, it's, it's at the same time, it's not as violent and as terrible. Some of the stories I'm starting to hear from you, um, coming out of Jamaica, that, and that seems like that would be a very hard interview. Like, how do you, how do you get people to open up? I mean, like those first couple ones, especially it's like, was that just something where You'd already made contact with them, I assume? Yeah, we'd made contact with them. And, and we kind of started out with some of the, the, the gay rights activists who'd been on camera before. We're a little more comfortable mm-hmm. with that. Um, and once they bought into what we were doing, I, I remember it was the second week and it was a Thursday. And we had a few really great interviews. Um, and then on Friday morning, we woke up to a call and said, hey, we've lined up a bunch of young gay homeless kids who want to talk to you come over to the the headquarters you know so we headed over and things just started flowing from that point Mm -hmm. so i I think it was it was you know the strategy was going with people who were a little more comfortable with being on camera getting them to buy into our message and then allowing them to kind of open the doors to everybody else Uh, but you know some of the some of the stuff took a long time we wanted to get um someone in the government we wanted to get a minister of parliament and that took us three weeks pretty much harassing the guy <laughs> i was called you know i would call him in the morning before we left for a shoot i would call him in the evening when i got back i emailed him and everything was heading to his secretary and i finally found his personal number <laughs> and i called him directly and i bugged him and finally he said yes and he was the he's the one minister of parliament at that time who'd come out in support of gay rights mm-hmm. i should be careful with saying that he wouldn't say gay rights he would say equal treatment of people and non-violent services people um but um uh, yeah so it was a lot of persistence and and that's pretty draining after a while you know just knowing that you know i get back from this interview and i've got five more phone calls that i have to make to people who are pretty hostile you know there's a woman who who had said some pretty negative things about um about the lgbt community and i i got in the habit of calling her every week and she would hang up on me every time <laughs> you know but she you know she would publish articles regularly so every time she published an article i would call her up again <laughs> Never you- got to with her but you know i mean it, that that uh, we had another example of um a woman who ran an underground gay lounge and we knew she was so vital to the story you know she gave such an interesting and different perspective than some of the other activists and she'd formerly worked as an activist before starting this gay lounge as, as kind of a, a more positive approach she felt um to the struggle and i mean it took us just hanging out in the lounge hanging out in the bar for weeks for her to be able to trust us wow how do you decide when you have your story because like 
you're working within a time constraint. You can't you can't live in Jamaica forever, and you're dealing with a thing that's an ongoing situation. So it's not like covering, for example, like the History Channel will do a documentary on the Battle of Gettysburg. Well, you can kind of decide where that begins and where that ends, and make a two-hour experience out of that. How do you just kind of go? Okay, that's it. We got to go home now. Is it just? Is it just that? Or I mean, how do you deal with that? Uh, ooh, that's a good question. I think <laughs> I think um, I think part of it was we had five weeks. Everything we got in five right. weeks was it. Um, there's also the question. You know, I sometimes sit back and sometimes wonder: Do we have it yet? Do we need to get mm-hmm. more? Interviews? I mean, when we came back, we spent um, another three or four weeks traveling around the the East Coast, shooting with Jamaican asylum seekers in the U.S. and Canada um, to fill in parts of the story. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, and the nice thing about documentary is, honestly, like, we could get really close to being at a final edit. Something happens, we go, that needs to be part of the documentary, you know? Right. Yeah, that's true. And, and there is that flexibility to do that. It's a little scary. And there's definitely a point where you just have to stop. I think one of the guidelines for us was we realized we needed to hit certain markers. We needed we needed, we needed interviews that explain the complexity of Jamaica. It's not a simple situation in the least. It's a situation that has ties to colonialism and slavery and and ideas of masculinity and misogyny. You know, it's all this big bundle of things. How do we communicate all that? Um, how do we communicate that complexity? So we knew we had to get certain interviews. We need to. We needed to get historical context. So we set up kind of mile markers. When we get these interviews, we know we have this section or this section or this section. And that's kind of how we approached it in this case. Um, we know we need to get opposition voices, people who really don't like the LGBT community and are willing to say that on camera. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and you're getting all of these sensitive interviews and, and stuff. How do you How do you end up protecting the people in that because i mean obviously that seems also like something that you're trying to do is you know both tell their story and right, protect absolutely. them so usually the method is to you know fuzz out the face do a, a silhouette um uh, change the voice a little and we were pretty uncomfortable with that because we felt like especially with this kind of documentary you needed to make a connection with the person mm-hmm so we did a little brainstorming, and we decided the method we were going to use is extreme close-ups of people's eyes, of their hands, their lips. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the emotive parts uh, of their bodies, where they communicated emotion the most. And so that's what we uh, went ahead and did. Uh, people were definitely uncomfortable. They assumed we were going to silhouette things. Though it's interesting that one of the activists said, please, no more silhouette movies of us. <laughs> <laughs> and so when we proposed this idea, he was in love with it, and he went to bat for us, which was really great. Um, but we would always show, you know, our interviewees the shot. We would set it up. We'd flip around the monitor so they could see what we were doing. Um, make them as comfortable as possible with the shot, and get like these really tight close-ups. And I think I think that, as far as I've seen, has been a pretty successful way of of protecting who they are and still connecting you with the person. Hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so uh, you know, now that you've gotten all of this and, and you're in post-production you know how much of it is um you know you have stuff while you're there and you're figuring things out and now you're sitting in an editing room and uh going through all of this you know how much of the story is already there how much of it are you crafting you know what what is that like it's definitely an interesting process because you can definitely see the hurdles um i have a fantastic editor julia alti and and she's been doing the lion's share of this work um Right now, what's interesting is my job more as a director seems to be a little more managerial. Like, a lot of the time, I 
you know, I'm making sure that we have a colorist lined up for, you know, March, make sure that we have a colorist then, sound designer, make sure that I put in a call to the composer. So it's all this kind of managerial, making sure we keep on schedule thing. So it's always fun for me to get, you know, an email with, from her with the rough cut or a slightly more refined section. And so I've been going over with that with her. And um, there's still a bit to do with crafting the story because there's, I mean, I feel like a documentary a lot of times is crafted in post mm-hmm. much more than a, a fictional narrative mm-hmm. um, because you really are just getting a lot of raw, raw material that's not at all tweaked, crafted. And, um, and you're having to figure out how to put it into a really interesting flow. One thing that we did um, that I really like doing and I fairly common is that we took all the transcripts and I had my editor cut it into a paper cut. So basically, cutting and pasting pieces of the transcripts mm. as if she was editing and putting it all together into a big paper document and allowing me to be able to flip through the transcripts as if it was a script um, mm. that she'd cut and then be able to refine on paper first so that when she started cutting on film, uh, cutting the video, um, we were a lot further along. And that's a really interesting way to craft the story. But we can definitely see some hurdles going ahead. I mean, to be completely open, one of the things that we're struggling with is the fact that um, because we weren't able to follow people through, um, we've got to avoid becoming a talking head documentary, and we've got to figure out strategies to do that. Um, There's a place for that. This isn't that place. And so we've got to figure out how we can create the space and the emotion that's needed. And then we definitely have some really interesting ideas about how to approach that, but it's something we're still tackling. And so that process is still ongoing and it's, it's a really interesting place to be. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I know you're not quite at this point yet, but um, you know, I, I know you did a lot of your, your funding for this through Indiegogo. Um, and so, I mean, that creates a certain expectation, you know, when you're done, you obviously have reward packages that you put together for people Absolutely. with, you know, DVDs yeah. or that kind of thing. Um, you know, beyond that, um, you know, that kind of also means that you don't have like a lot of investors looking for major return on a project like this. Right. So, so how do you get this out? What is kind of your, you know, end game strategy? How do, how do you get a movie like this out to people? Cause you know, documentaries have not traditionally been the strongest uh suit in the movie arsenal for right. for making money or that kind of thing um i i think we're probably not looking at a theatrical release not anything large anyway if if, if at all very limited but we definitely want to want to do a significant festival run so that's our big goal is making sure that it's it's ready and able to play at festivals mm-hmm. uh, and that would be the first goal is is kind of go down the list of festivals, you know, starting with big festivals, moving to niche festivals, moving to local festivals. Um, and after that, we would like to see it on TV. I think that would be a great way to distribute it, whether the documentary channel or HBO or something like that would be a fantastic way to have the film seen. But we don't want to stop at that. We want it to be, to some degree, an educational or conversation tool. So we are trying to team up with... Um, schools, churches, people who are willing to screen it. Um, the Metropolitan Community Church was historically uh, uh, an LGBT-friendly, and LGBT-run denomination has talked about screening this film in a lot of their locations around the U.S. Hmm. Um, so just really kind of using unique ways to get it out, local screenings, festivals, hopefully TV, and um, the Internet. Uh, one of the nice things about... Um, 
this nonprofit is that our goal is kind of to bridge the gap between the viewer and the creator using the internet, you know, and in some ways skipping the middleman. I think the internet is a great way to get work seen these days. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know, Scott. Is there anything else that uh, that you want to find out about about this aspect of of the uh, documentary process? Uh, honestly, that th- I feel like that you no. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, um, is there anything, Leslie, that you would like to cover? Is there anything that you know as we kind of go over this? Uh, the process of documentary filmmaking. We talk about your documentary. Is there anything you'd like to get out there? Because we are going to try to get this, you know, podcast online here in the next uh, couple of days within recording it. Um, and so, is there any way that people can help you um, in this post-production process? Is there? Are you still fundraising? Is there, you know, or just another subject that you would like to kind of cover and make sure people know about? Absolutely. Um, I, we're absolutely still fundraising. We're looking at about twenty-five thousand dollars more. Uh, to finish everything up so we're fundraising we have a paypal site that people can donate to and because we have a fantastic fiscal sponsor all that uh can qualify uh, qualifies for tax write-off which is great um and we will have links to all of all of your pages and all of that information on our website at com. Um, but we'll also uh tweet some of that out so people can uh know about it as well yeah if people are interested in if if people are interested in volunteering we're um building up a volunteer database for traveling muse pictures and this you know will include small tasks during the week that we'll distribute online whether it's researching little things or helping send out newsletters so we're trying to build a volunteer network um that can work with us on on small things that kind of make our lives easier as filmmakers and so if people are interested in that they can contact us through the website at info at travelingmuse.com and just shoot us an email if you're interested in volunteering. Um, and if you know anybody who's interested in the film, has who knows what connections to that might be interested, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, Excellent. Um, just kind of uh, one kind of thing to follow up with here and kind of maybe close out on. Um, you know, we're kind of trying to, to build up uh, movies you should love here as as kind of a place where people can come and really learn about film. Um, you know, it, it's not. I mean, we say it's kind of like film school without the uh, tuition, but obviously, it's not quite that. You know, we're not teaching people lighting <laughs> techniques or whatever. But um, you know, for people to kind of get into the theory of film and that kind of thing, I think that's what we're really after. Yeah. And and just what would you say? Um, you know, as as a documentary filmmaker. Um, for people who want to get into to the business, uh, you know, what can they expect? What what words of encouragement or discouragement would you have for people? <laughs> uh, I'll give you the words of discouragement first, I suppose. And that would be, if you can imagine yourself happily, and that's important, happily doing something else, do something else. <laughs> that may sound harsh, but I, it's, it's uh, especially the art world is, is, a, is a tricky world, and it, it can be really disheartening but on the positive side especially the filmmaking community and especially the documentary filmmaking community is an amazing community people really take care of each other they look after each other i've gotten you know just meeting other documentary filmmakers who who've given me great advice and wisdom um i think getting into this world i would a big recommendation is keep your eyes open listen to everything don't let anything go past as boring or inconsequential you never know where something will lead you and um 
and that you will really be surprised by what happens when you keep your eyes open just a little more. Um, it's really kind of surprising. Um, let me see if there's anything else I can add to that. <laughs> um, I, I can't reiterate the fact that, that, you know, not to be afraid to ask people for help um, um, and to be detail-oriented. Um, but definitely be willing to ask people for help because you can be really surprised by how friendly and willing people are to, to chime in and um, mm. give you advice, give you help. Um, and that's been amazing for us. Very good. Um, well, thank you, Leslie, so much for being on with us. Um, again, uh, Leslie Foster is finishing up his film Until We Have Faces, um, and you can learn a ton more about it, I'm sure, at their website, travelingmuse.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and links will also be on our website. Yeah, links to all of his websites, as well as the documentaries we talked about today, as well as a list of other documentaries that we would recommend you check out if you're in the mood for uh, a documentary. Yeah. So, Leslie, thank you so much for being on with us today. Um, we really enjoyed having you. Absolutely. Yes. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. And thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will uh, talk to you again next time. You've been listening to the Movies You Should Love podcast. Join in the conversation at moviesyoushouldlove.com.